Okay, well, welcome back to week 15. We're nearing the end here. We have two more weeks after this. Week 15 of Remembering the Faithful this morning, a heavy hitter, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You guys ready? All right. Before we get started, I just want to wish the mothers in the room happy Mother's Day. We're blessed to have my own mother in the room. Happy Mother's Day, Mama. Love you. Um, in that same vein, we were given by a mother in the room this book to give out. It's by Tim Challies. It's just a gift for a mother in the room. It's called Devoted, Great Men and Their Godly Moms. Can I give this away? Nick will be in charge of passing that out. Thanks for that, Sophia. So Charles Spurgeon had a godly mother himself. Her name was Eliza. And she prayed for his conversion for years. He was converted when he was 15. And after that moment, she said to him, Charles, I've often prayed that you would become a Christian, but I never once thought you'd become a Baptist. <laughs> and he said, the Lord has granted your request in his usual way by giving you exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever ask or think. What a, what a testimony of faith of a godly mother. Okay, so you grabbed a handout on your way in. There should, be, uh, should have been a set of QR codes on the back if you want to hover your phone or your camera over that. It should give you access to the uh, PowerPoint we're going to be using this morning and a digital version of the handout if you like to take notes on an iPad or something. Before we get started, I'd like to invite Sophia Boudreau up just for a moment, just a few minutes. So Sophia and I had a conversation maybe six months ago, a year ago or so, sometime, where she just noted the unique contribution that Spurgeon had made in her own life. And so I just wanted to give her a couple minutes to uh, share that encouragement with us, maybe as a, to get us started this morning. I don't think I turned the mic on, actually. Hello? There you go. Okay, sorry. Thank you. Um, so, he's an old friend. <laughs> Amen. Um, the Lord has just used his ministry, his wife's ministry, um, for years in my life, and it's just like old Chuck and Susie. Um, uh, <clears throat> many years ago, I went through about three years of depression, and at the time, um, I was just in Doubting Castle. If you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, yeah. I was just being hammered by giant despair. And um, the way Christian got out was the key of promise, remembering God's word and, and God's promises. And I believe the Lord used Spurgeon um, to point me and to remind me about the key of promise um, and the word of God. And ever since then, I've just, um, all of his writings and works have been really um, influential in my life, um, particularly their marriage. Um, they had a great marriage by God's grace, but I would say that their affection for Christ, um, for each other, grew out of their affection for Christ. So the more that they loved the Lord and served God, the more they loved each other. Um, they were really creative in their marriage. There was a lot of humor and wit um, and thoughtfulness. And so those are some lessons that the Lord has used to teach me in, in our marriage. Um, he had some of my favorite things that he would call his wife was dear purchase of a savior's blood. I just, I'm like, like how romantic. <laughs> um, and oh, Ryan, man. my husband, would 
you know, he, sometimes he'll write letters like that to me. Um, but they thought, they were both very sickly, um, both physically and, and spiritually at times. <clears throat> Spurgeon with depression and, and physical sickness and his wife with um, sick, a lot of physical sickness. And they thought that their sickness um, was worthwhile because it taught them greater dependence on God. And you see that in their writings as they encourage you, as they share their stories through letters that they've, they wrote to each other and people that knew them, that wrote about them. They just witnessed their great love for God, which created a great love for each other. And um, <clears throat> if, again, if you don't know, um, if you haven't read The Pilgrim's Progress, I suggest you do that because if you start to read um, some of Spurgeon's writings, you'll see the Pilgrim's Progress just kind of sprinkled throughout his language. He said he read um, it over he read it like over times. over a hundred times. I think he made a point to read it every year. Yeah. I tried that and I just didn't, <laughs> didn't work. Uh, particularly part two. I actually like part two better than part one, but they're really, really encouraging because it's just this reminder that we are on this journey to the celestial city mm. and all of these different pilgrims are the Lord sends to come alongside of us to encourage us um, as they po- as we point each other to Christ. And, um, yeah, another thing I really love about Spurgeon is his language. He puts language to sorrow, just like David. And so there's a lot of word pictures. He's a wordsmith. Um, I'm a visual learner. And so when he paints pictures of sea billows and oceans of grief and Atlantic waves of bereavement, um, it just brings it all home for me. Um, and he doesn't just leave you there in your sorrow. He, he suffered a lot. Um, he, he really did. And he doesn't just wallow in his sorrows with you. He's just look to Christ. Look to Christ. So there's one little reading, if I can read it. Yep. It's one of my favorites. Okay. Absolutely. Sorry. Um, this is my favorite devotional. It's kind of worn. And this is just an example of him pointing you to Christ. Um, it's from Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself. Jesus is the great teacher of lowliness of heart. We need daily to learn of him. See the master taking a towel and washing his disciples' feet. Follower of Christ, wilt thou not humble thyself? See him as the servant of servants, and surely thou canst not be proud. Is not this sentence the compendium of his biography? He humbled himself? Was he not on earth always stripping off first one robe of honor? And then another, till naked, he was fastened to the cross. And there, did he not empty out his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving up for all of us, till they laid him penniless in a borrowed grave? How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorn crown, mark his scored shoulders, still gushing within crimson rills. See hands and feet given up to the rough iron, and his whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief, showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the thrilling shriek, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. If you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten. Think of that, and as Jesus stooped for you, bow yourself in lowliness at his feet. 
A sense of Christ's amazing love to us has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. May the Lord bring us into contemplation to Calvary. Then our position will no longer be that of pompous man of pride, but we shall take the humble place of one who loves much because much has been forgiven him. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. Let us sit there and learn our lesson and then rise and carry it into practice. Amen. Sister, thank you for sharing with us. I've got a book here for you by Zach Eswine. It's called Spurgeon's Sorrows. I, hope, I don't know if you're familiar with that. But how about this? How about this? I will give you this book for you to give to someone else. Anyone interested in Spurgeon's Sorrows? Sophia's going to bring it to you. There you go. Thank you, sister. Okay. Well, before we get into the meat of our uh, time together this morning, let's begin by praying that the Lord would help us. Lord, we are grateful for the fact that you have shown us great patience, that you've dealt kindly with us. And I pray that we would be a meek and a humble people so that we might be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us this morning to believe in hope in the midst of depression. And God, help us to believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures for all things concerning life and godliness. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Okay, just a reminder quickly of the purpose of this class. It's to do three things, essentially, and it's to obey uh, Hebrews 13.7, right? Those three things. We're going to remember our leaders. We're going to consider the outcome of their way of life. We're going to imitate their faith. So that'll make up kind of our handout this morning, the way that we're going to organize this morning. We're going to remember our brother Charles by considering a bit of his personal biography. We'll consider the outcome of his way of life uh, concerning like his unique contributions in ministry and life. And then we'll end by hearing ways that we can imitate his faith in our own personal life. <clears throat> Well, let's begin by considering just quickly a text of Scripture that our brother Charles Spurgeon exemplified well in his own life. If you've got a Bible, if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Isaiah 45, verse 22. So typically what we do in this class is whoever's teaching will take time to explain some context, maybe explain a bit of, about the verse, apply the verse to our lives. But what I'm going to do this morning is actually... Uh, let a different preacher do that for us. So this verse was the verse under which Charles Spurgeon was converted. And he had the foresight, the thoughtfulness to remember to write down what he remembered of that sermon. So I'd like to just read you uh, first the verse, but then a bit from that actual sermon that he was converted under. So the verse itself, my Bible reads this way, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. King James Version, which he would have heard, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. The story takes place during a mighty snowstorm in 1850. Spurgeon recounts the scene this way. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm 
one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen people. I wanted to know how to be saved. The minister, the pastor, the main preacher, right, did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man went up to the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. There was a glimmer of hope for me in that verse. The preacher began thus, This is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your finger or your foot. It is just look. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. We'll continue to hear how this, Spurgeon, or this sermon affected Spurgeon's soul in just a few moments. But first, we'll kind of catch our way up to that point by considering some of his biography, and then we'll hear the rest of that story in a moment. So this is point number three, if you're following along. Remember your leaders. So Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born on June 19th. 1834, in the village of Essex in England. He spent his first 14 months at home with his parents, but from there he went to live with his father's parents, his paternal grandparents, in the rural village of Stambourne. He lived there until he was five years old. The reason for that move was they were financially in a difficult spot. They had more children on the way. Charles was the oldest of his brothers and sisters, so naturally he had the generous support of his grandparents to raise him during those years. His grandfather was also a pastor. He was the Reverend James Spurgeon who pastored the Congregational Church in Stanbourne for several decades, over 30 years. He was an educated man who was familiar with the scriptures, but even more uh, uniquely, he was familiar with the Puritans. He had many Puritan writings. That gave Spurgeon a wealth of opportunity that many in that, that era did not have, right? Access to the Puritans. <clears throat> and it seemed that by the time he was a teenager, um, Spurgeon, from all of this wonderful literature that he was exposed to, had just a mastery of the English language that was unrivaled by his peers. And we reap the benefit of that throughout his ministry. His way with words was notable. Spurgeon's grandmother, Sarah, was married to James and was a wonderful support to him, but it was his youngest aunt, Anne, who truly mothered Charles during those first five years. She cared for him as a toddler. She taught him to read, taught him to pray, taught him to play and have fun, as if children need help in that area. But uh, Arnold Dallimore, who's a biographer of Spurgeon, wrote this uh, of Anne, she was delighted to have little Charles in the home, and he became the special object of her love and care. 
So though he was apart from his mother, he had a very godly grandmother and a very um, involved and loving aunt. So life in his grandparents' home was completely, as you can imagine, a, a pastor's home. It was completely uh, built around the centrality of the scriptures, right? They were read, prayed, they gave thanks to the Lord together every single day. So writing of the regular mood in the Spurgeon home growing up, Dallimore says this, the standards of the Bible were joyfully accepted and dishonesty or malice of any kind was entirely unknown. Life was serious, but it was marked by humor and happiness. And godliness with contentment, which is great gain, characterized both work and pleasure for the Spurgeons, both young and old. Something to aspire to in your own homes. Right there. So like I said, when he was five years old, he returned to his parents, John and Eliza's home. Uh, John, his father, was a clerk in a coal merchant's office, and he also pastored the Congregational Church in Tolsbury. His mother, Eliza, who we heard from earlier, she was largely the sole figure of influence in his life when it came to just day-to-day -day upbringing, since John was busy pastoring and seeking to earn a, a wage for his family at the coal merchant's office. When he was 14, he and his brother James were enrolled at the St. Augustine's Agricultural College in Maidstone. He excelled at university the same way he had in school up until that point. He had an absolutely insatiable appetite for books and for studying. His own brother James said this about Charles. He never did anything else but study. I kept rabbits, chickens, and pigs, and a horse. He kept to books. <laughs> Though he had nothing to do with other things, he could tell you all about them because he used to read about everything with a memory as tenacious as a vice and as copious as a barn. Such was his memory. <laughs> so around the time that Spurgeon was a teenager, he quickly slipped into a dark night of the soul, if you want to call it. He knew that he wasn't saved and that he was in desperate need of salvation, but he could not find any relief. He'd pray and he would not find relief. He would stay up and read the Bible and he would not find relief. This caused him to feel that desperate need for grace. But no matter how hard he tried, he was always left despairing. At the climax of that Methodist preacher's sermon that we read a part of earlier, he looked right into Charles's eyes and he made a plea for him to repent and believe in the gospel. Spurgeon remembered that moment this way. This is the second half of that sermon. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I am now sitting at my Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. And then fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable. 
Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And the Lord did a miracle. He performed a miracle in that moment. And Spurgeon recounts, I saw at once the way of salvation. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. We're, we're going to be considering Spurgeon, who is a uniquely gifted preacher. But just a note, that God used a simple, unlearned, modest preacher and he saved someone nonetheless. Isn't that amazing? The congregation had 12 people and he wasn't even the, the senior pastor of that church. He was just perhaps a deacon or a, just a member of the church who in his absence stood up and proclaimed the word of God and God performed a miracle he forgave all of his sins and gave him new life in that moment. That's marvelous. Back to his biography. His veracity in the classroom and his newfound, that newfound fire in his bones to preach and teach the word resulted in him being called to pastor a small Baptist or congregational church in Water Beach. He did so for two years. He was 17 years old when he went to pastor that church. He had been a believer for one year, one and a half years. He drew crowds everywhere he went due to that clear gift of preaching and rhetoric, right? He pastored Water Beach for two years until he was called to pastor the famed New Park Street Chapel, which some of the previous pastors were Benjamin Keach and John Rippon and John Gill, to name a few. Big shoes to fill, in other words. At New Park Street, he met Susanna Thompson. He served as her pastor, and she grew exponentially under his preaching and from his wise counsel. And they would be married in 1856. And they would raise twin sons, Charles Jr. and Thomas. Their son Thomas would actually later become the pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which was the new meeting location of the New Park Street Chapel. So he would succeed his father in that. Only two years at New Park Street, the building was at capacity. When he showed up, there was like 100 people. Like the building could hold several thousand, but there was, it had dwindled significantly by the time that he got there. Within two years, they were bursting at the seams. And so plans for expansion of the building began and people were just flocking to hear him preach. Unfortunately, before the expansion of that building had been completed, 
the congregation had already outgrown the remodeled space as well. So they'd been meeting at Exeter Hall and then at the Surrey Music Hall. So their congregation had room to spread and they had room to grow. And by the time that all of the construction was done and complete, the building was too small again. So such is life. He pastored the saints at the Metropolitan Tabernacle for 38 years. And the Metropolitan Tabernacle was built and it could seat 6,000 people. And it was typically filled to capacity every Sunday, twice every Sunday. 6,000 people twice every Lord's Day. And it did so for decades. During his pastorate, he saw the founding of a pastor's college, an orphanage, a Christian literature society, and the Sword and the Trowel magazine. Over 200 churches were started in the surrounding counties of England, and they were largely, maybe all of them were pastored by pastor's college graduates. Spurgeon's sermons were transcribed and sold for a penny each week. Each week, there were around 25,000 copies sold of his sermon for that week. In the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s. 25,000 copies a week. These sermons, which are still in print, fill 63 volumes. So if you want to read through all of his sermons... You can, but it's 63 volumes long. Oh my goodness. This set stands as the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. His sermons alone. Not his other writings, just his sermons. The largest single set from any author in the history of the church. He is undoubtedly the most prolific preacher since the Apostles. One of Spurgeon's sons had this to say about his father's preaching ministry. This was Thomas. There was no one who could preach like my father. An inexhaustible variety, witty wisdom, vigorous proclamation, loving entreaty, and lucid teaching with a multitude of other qualities. He must, at least in my opinion, ever be regarded, as where we get that famous quote, as the prince of preachers. Spurgeon served the Met Tab well unto the end. He died in 1892 at the age of 57. Okay. He did a lot in 57 years. Amen. Typically at this point, I'll like to stop and ask, are there any questions? But just due to the familiarity largely that I assume some of you have with Spurgeon, what he's written, how his sermons have impacted you. I'd love to just take a few moments. Does anyone have any just encouragements from the way that Spurgeon has ministered to you in your life? I'd love to take a few moments just to hear from you. Nick.
Spurgeon's uh, expository language to help clarify. Amen. Praise God. Anyone else? Any ways that Spurgeon's ministry has encouraged you? Dan. I see some of those same qualities in you, brother. <laughs> We're all blessed by it. Sam. You recommend the book one more time? Yeah. yeah. Spurgeon Sorrows? Spurgeon Sorrows. That's right. That's the one we just gave out, actually. Yeah. There you go. Hopefully that book is helpful to kind of... Yep. One of the things that has been super helpful for me, even in that same vein of talking about kind of depression and things like that, 
has been the way he, so he has a, a set of writings called the Treasury of David. It's his working commentary on the Psalms. And just the way he deals with Psalms of Lament and how he readily identifies with all of those things in the Psalms, but doesn't leave you there to just wallow and suffer there, but offers, yeah, hope to, to get out of that. Mm, that's helpful. Thank you, guys. Okay, now we're going to consider <clears throat> the outcome of Spurgeon's way of life. So we're going to do this in two kind of main sections. One, Spurgeon the preacher. We know him as the preacher. So naturally it would be wrong of us not to at least comment on that ministry. But secondly, it gets to Sam and others, your point. He was a great sufferer. So we're going to talk about Spurgeon the preacher and Spurgeon the sufferer. That'll make up this next uh, point in your handout, point four. Spurgeon's preaching, more than any aspect of his ministry, was what gave his life its unique and lasting impact. The sheer quantity of his preaching is just unreal. Remember, 63 volumes just of his sermons. Not the sword and the trial, not mornings and evenings, not the addresses to his pastor's college, just his sermons. We're all bound in books and fill 63 volumes. In his first sermon at the newly constructed Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon said this, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist I do not hesitate to take the name Baptist, but if I'm asked to say what is my creed, I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. He was a preacher concerned primarily with the, the truths found in Scripture. If it wasn't true, he didn't want it. He wasn't going to preach it. So a note to all of us who listen to preaching regularly, here it is. If you ever leave this church and are tasked with finding another church to join with, which you are if you leave this church, be like Spurgeon and value the truth of the gospel, the clarity of the word of God preached faithfully, regularly. Value that as like point number one. When you're looking for a new church, do they preach the gospel? That was his highest priority. That ought to be your highest priority when you seek another church. When you seek any church. There are gifted communicators and exciting personalities um, engaging church ministries around every corner. But they're not the pinnacle. They're not of most importance. We need to rightly value the truth of the gospel and the, and the gospel preached. Invest yourself and your family and your generosity in a church that prizes the pure gospel of Christ. Spurgeon defined the work of a preacher like this. It is to know the truth as it should be known, to love it as it should be loved, and then to proclaim it in the right spirit and in its proper proportions. So preaching is not just the act of preaching. It's the preparation to preach. Similarly, he said to his students, to be an effective preacher, you must first be a sound theologian. 
two years before he died, he wrote this. Some excellent brothers seem to think more of life than of the truth. For when I warn them that the enemy has poisoned the children's bread, they answer, Dear brother, we are sorry to hear it. And to counteract the evil, we will open the window and give the children fresh air. Yes, open the window and give them fresh air by all means, but at the same time, arrest the poisoners. While men go on preaching false doctrine, you may talk as much as you will about deepening their spiritual life, but you will fail in it. Doctrinal fidelity was the foundation upon which he built his entire ministry. And when it came to doctrine, Spurgeon had a spine of steel, of cast iron. During his ministry at the Met Tab, there arose what's known today as a downgrade controversy. And I'm not an expert in the downgrade controversy, but I'll tell you what I learned this week about it. It had to do with a, a certain uh, movement in academia that they were calling into question the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. So, for example, Darwin's origin of species, right, was causing some to question the divine creation of the world and of mankind. Similarly, academic higher criticism uh, called into question the veracity and the inspiration of Scripture, relegating it to just be a human book, not divinely inspired. And Spurgeon had this to say about the downgrade controversy. A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity. I don't quite understand this image, but I love it. It's no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. Whatever. Uh, he was a great writer, trust me. Uh, <laughs> he had a way with words. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. And on this plea usurps pulpits which were created for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted. The inspiration of Scripture is derided. The Holy Ghost is degraded into an influence, or a mere influence. The punishment of sin is turned into a fiction and the resurrection into a myth, and yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them. He wrote that in the sword and the trowel. So I borrowed this, this past couple weeks, I borrowed Jacob Killian's copy of Arnold Dallimore's biography of Spurgeon, and I don't think I've ever been so helped by like people writing on the side in the margins of a book. That quote that I just read, Jacob left a helpful insight. He wrote, um, in all caps, get him. <laughs> I was helped by that. I was really helped. Uh, it pointed me in the right direction of that page. What's important here? And Jacob's not even here. Anyway, love you, Jacob. So Spurgeon was theologically grounded, but that didn't inhibit his passion as an evangelist. He was always seeking to win souls. There was not likely a week that went by where souls were not saved by his preaching or through reading his sermons. He was on the watch for souls. He once noted this, one brother has earned for himself the title of my hunting dog, for he is always ready to pick up the wounded birds. In the same vein, he wrote, I remember when I've preached at different times in the country and sometimes here, 
that my whole soul has agonized over men. Every nerve of my body has been strained, and I could have wept my very being out of my eyes and carried my whole frame away in a flood of tears if I could but win souls. This language of agonizing over men and straining to see people saved is similar to the language he might have used to describe his own physical state, actually, at that time. Not only was Spurgeon a great preacher, he was a great sufferer. That's our second sub-point on point four. Spurgeon was a great sufferer. He was acquainted with grief, but perhaps the singular moment that caused him the most lasting distress, it actually came very early in his ministry. On October 19th and 1856, while the tabernacle was being built, he preached to his congregation at Royal Surrey Gardens. There were well over 10,000 people there. No microphone, by the way. He had what he would describe as uh, a finely tuned instrument, <laughs> meaning a loud, boisterous, what's the word? He had a loud voice. You get it. At that point in the sermon, someone, even though there was not a fire, they shouted, fire, and the crowd went into a panic. There was a stampede of people trying to exit the, build, the building, and in one of the stairwells, there were seven people who were trampled underfoot and lost their lives. 28 others were critically injured. Seriously injured might be a better way to say that. That incident had a lasting impact on Spurgeon. He was 22 years old when that happened. His friend and biographer, Daryl Amundsen, wrote this. I cannot but think from what I saw that his comparatively early death, remember he died at 57, his early death might be in some measure due to the furnace of mental suffering he endured on and after that fearful night. In addition to his grief, he had many physical ailments. He suffered from gout, suffered from rheumatism, suffered from Bright's disease, which is a kidney disease, an inflammation of the kidneys. His gout became so bad that one of every three Sundays for the last 20 years of his ministry, he was out of the pulpit either suffering or taking precautions to see that the ailment didn't come back. One-third of every Sunday for the last 20 years of his ministry, he was out with an illness. Amidst his grief and his physical suffering came attacks from uh, external forces, be it uh, both sides of the political and theological aisles. Theological liberals were claiming that he had no understanding of grace, while hyper-conservatives declared that his concern for social ministries was uh, it undermined his understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. The culmination of all of these trials, grief, physical suffering, attacks from those in the, in the culture, it resulted in a deep and abiding depression that lasted for decades. He recounts his first significant bout with depression in ministry by saying this, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. 
In one of his lectures to his students, he wrote about depression this way, causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discoursings. As well fight with the mist as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. The iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prison needs a heavy hand to push it back. Let's consider Psalm 88, just for a moment. One verse in Psalm 88, verse 3, it says this, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. Sam, this is an an example of what I was referencing, the treasury of David, and how he can relate to grief, relate to suffering, yet give us hope in Christ. This is what Spurgeon writes. It's how he comments on this verse. He, the psalmist, felt as if he must die. Indeed, he thought himself half dead already. All his life was going. His spiritual life declined. His mental life decayed. His bodily life flickered. He was nearer dead than alive. Some of us can enter into this experience. For many a time, we've traversed this valley of death shade. I and dwelt in it by the month together. Death would be welcomed as a relief by those whose depressed spirits make their existence a living death. Are good men ever permitted to suffer thus? This is important. Indeed they are. And some of them are even all their lifetime subject to bondage. Remember when we talked about John Newton, his friend William Cooper? This would be a great example of that, of someone who was subject to bondage throughout their life. But we trust now that by sight and no longer suffer in that way. Spurgeon said, O Lord, be pleased to set thy prisoners of hope free. Let none of thy mourners imagine that a strange thing has happened unto him, but rather rejoice as he sees the footprints of brethren who have trodden this desert before. Sam. No resolve. That's right. Um, you know, Sam was noting that Psalm 88 and Psalm 89 as well really don't have a clear resolve in them, resolution. Uh, I'll commend to you and to everyone, 
Ligon Duncan did, I think he has his sermons on those two psalms published in a little book. I forget the name. Anyone remember the name of that little book? Anyway, his sermons on Psalm 88 and 89 really help to kind of clarify what we've been, what we've been talking about this morning. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, while he never, Spurgeon never really felt total relief from that depression in this life, we trust that he now and forevermore has felt that relief. Amen? That's what we look forward to. Okay, we're going to move now to that final point where we're going to consider some ways that we can imitate the faith of our brother Charles Spurgeon. The first is this. Trust in God's sovereignty amidst depression. Trust in God's sovereignty amidst depression. The first way I'd like to challenge you this morning is by asking you to do something that is simple in concept, but extraordinarily difficult in practice. I challenge you to believe the Bible when it says that all things work for good for those who love God. I'm challenging you to believe that. The Bible said it. All things work for good for those who love God. Spurgeon said this, it would be a very sharp and trying exercise to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. He goes forward, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that, can give, that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. If some men that I know of could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. There's a hymn writer in the church. He was not uh, paid by any church to do this. He was actually a laborer, but he wrote a hymn. His name is John Kent. He wrote this hymn. To his church, his joy and treasure, every trial works for good. They are dealt in weight and measure, yet how little understood. If today he deigns to bless us with a sense of pardoned sin, perhaps tomorrow he'll distress us, make us feel the plague within. Then he gives a purpose statement, all to make us sick of ourselves and fond of him. That marvelous. Sufferings come in this life to strengthen us, but also to make us sick of ourselves and fond of Christ. The second way that I'd like to challenge us this morning is to be refreshed by the ordinary means of grace. Be refreshed by ordinary means of grace. I'd like to offer a few ways that we can do that. I'd like to ask you to rest and to enjoy nature. These are some practical applications, I hope. I'd like for you to, to take time during your week to rest 
and to enjoy nature. Spurgeon notes, it is wisdom to take occasional furlough. In the long run, we shall do more by sometimes doing less. We must every now and then cry halt and serve the Lord by holy inaction and consecrated leisure. Let no tender conscience doubt the lawfulness of going out of harshness for a while. So rest and enjoy nature. Secondly, I challenge you to pray and to meditate upon Scripture. Spurgeon said this, Above all, fan the flame with intimate fellowship with Christ. No man was ever cold in heart who lived with Jesus on such terms as John and Mary did. I never met with a half-hearted preacher who was more in communion with the Lord Jesus. Lastly, I'd ask you to take hold close to you the promise that Christ is going to return. Christ is going to return for his people. Spurgeon reminds us on almost every page that you read of him to look to Christ and to hope fully in his impending return for his people. And our last point of application is actually going to clarify that point. And it's this. Simply to fix your eyes on eternity. Fix your eyes on eternity. I'd like to simply encourage you to remember that since Christ has elected you from before the world was ever given its footing, he will not, under any circumstances, fail to bring you home to glory. Though we suffer in this world, we know it's not actually our home, right? Archibald Brown was a student of Spurgeon's Pastors College, and he would later succeed him at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He wrote the, uh, this of his confidence in God's election. This might be the best quote of the morning. It's not even Spurgeon. It's the fruit of Spurgeon's ministry. There are times when I would not for all the world be without the doctrine of God's electing love. Oh, if you've never done business on the great waters of soul depression, I can understand some of you sneering at it. But if you have known what it is to be wiped out and to feel what an unutterable sinner you are, then you will thank God that when he loves, he finds the reason of his love in himself and not in you. Amen? Amen. Spurgeon, as is appropriate, will have the final word this morning. He writes about his confidence before God and his hope of heaven in this way. Okay, I lied. This is actually the best quote of the morning. Did he choose me before the mountains were brought forth? And will he reject me now? Impossible. I am sure 
he would not have loved me so long if he had not been a changeless lover. If he could grow weary of me, he would have been tired of me long before now. If he had not loved me with a love as deep as hell and as strong as death, he would have turned from me long ago. Oh, joy above all joys to know that I am his everlasting and in, in, sorry, inalienable inheritance given to him by his Father wherever the earth was. Everlasting love shall be the pillow for my head this night. If you're in Christ, you have everlasting love to be your pillow tonight. Let's pray. And then we'll stand together and sing the doxology.